I had what was, uh, for me, a little bit of a weird experience a couple of years ago. Uh, one of my friends who uh, is a pastor posted something about a social, a social issue on Facebook. And I can't remember what the issue was, uh, but I think it was during the time where we were having our nationwide discussions on race and everything that was going on. And I know those discussions are still happening and they need to continue. But in this particular case, my buddy had made a comment about how we uh, view those who are different from us. And he asked a question about how should we as Christians view or treat people who are different than us, something to that effect. And one of his church members got really angry with him for some of the comments that he was making. So first, let me take a break and say thank you for not sending me angry Facebook posts uh, <laughs> over the past couple of years. And this person was, was not only angry at him, but was angry at anyone that agreed with him on whatever the premise was. I, I actually went back and tried to find it, and I couldn't. So maybe it all happened in my head. I don't know, but we'll see. Now, normally, I wouldn't wade into these kinds of arguments or discussions. I, I, I try to stay away from those things unless I feel like I really need, like I really have something to say. Uh, but I was feeling saucy that particular day. So I went ahead and commented. And I wrote something about uh, how I, I believe the Bible calls us to treat people and to love people. And immediately, uh, some friends, some people I didn't know, they sent some really positive feedback. And so I was feeling pretty good about myself. I'm like, yeah, I spoke up for Jesus in this moment. Like, this is, this is really great. And so I responded to their positive responses by saying, this is just what the gospel teaches us. This is what the gospel says. Well, then angry member decided to reply. Uh, so after I hit send and I sat back waiting for people to reflect on the simplistic brilliance of my statements, she wrote back and she responded to what my buddy had said. She responded to what some other people had said. And all, all she said to me was she said, Bryce Smith with the eye roll emoji. That was it. The eye roll implied that I had an overly simplistic view of the world and that I was simply being naive for suggesting the gospel works in the way it does. You didn't know an eye roll said that much, did you? <laughs> I know you think they're mute. They're just little emojis, but it said all of that. And in one emoji, she completely dismissed both me and everything I had said. Now listen, I know how all this works. Um, I, I know that we have a lot running through our minds. I know that the last several years have been chaotic. And I also know that not everyone is going to agree with one another or agree with me, even though when they disagree with me, they're wrong. <laughs> <clears throat> but I could not fathom how someone could be so dismissive of the gospel as I understood it. That we are called to love people that are different than us. That we are called to understand people who have gone through things that we haven't gone through. And that we would dare, in some cases, to roll our eyes at the love that God calls us to. 
And after thinking about it for a couple of days, I came to this conclusion. You know, after I saw my therapist and took my meds, I came to this conclusion. This is not earth shattering, so don't roll your eyes at me when I say this. Um, it's exceedingly difficult for us to love others in the way that the Bible tells us to. Exceedingly difficult. The call to put ourselves and our own desires aside for the sake of others is not a small task. Which is why uh, these words that we read three or four weeks ago from Romans chapter 12 keep coming into my mind. So I want to refresh these for you this morning. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. These words from Paul, which were really not totally his own, but were built on the teachings and the law and Jesus, tell us how we are to love other people. And one of the things that this passage really drives home, which is why I've come back to it, I think, so many times, and why, just in my own study, I've come back to it so many times, it says that it does not matter what your relationship is to someone else. It doesn't matter how awful you think they are. It doesn't matter what they have or have not done to you or for you. Even if they are your enemy and actively seek to persecute you, you are to love them. Now, this is challenging, and we will spend the whole of our lives trying to carry out this ethic. Um, but I am convinced that the difficulty of the process is not really the problem. No matter how many times we read these verses and those like them, we will still create excuses that will keep us from loving other people. What are some of the excuses that we have for not loving other people? Well, one, maybe we just don't like them. It's, we're not going to like everyone, right? And not everyone is going to like us. 
Or perhaps they have done something wrong to us. Maybe they threaten us in some way, which doesn't have to be physically. It can be threatening in other ways. Maybe they are different from us in some fundamental way and we don't understand them. And our lack of understanding makes us uncomfortable. Maybe we don't agree with their worldview. And that's particularly troubling right now because when we don't agree with someone's worldview or philosophy on something in today's world, we are somehow allowed to label that person as evil. And that is as good of a justification for us as any to not love someone. Well, have you heard what they said about this? I mean, that's just evil. We could go on and on. I don't want to because it's depressing. But when this happens, we tend to fall back on an old trope. Um, well, I love them. I just don't like them. One of those, one piece of that statement is a lie. Do you know which part? Now, the thing about it is that this can be technically true. We are not going to like everyone that God calls us to love. And realistically speaking, you don't have to like everyone that God calls you to love. However, this rationale of, well, I love them, but I don't like them, does not give you the right to pay lip service to love. It doesn't give you the right to lie about the first part because the second part is true. So this is our big point of the day. The love that God calls us to is not a passive love that shows no evidence of its existence. Let me say it again. The love that God calls us to is not a passive love that shows no evidence of its existence. Instead, what God calls us to is a love that is very active. So much so that even the person you don't like will know that you love them. They will know that you love them and care about them. We see it in chapter 12. We see it in chapter 13. So let's pick up where we left off last week. From Romans chapter 13, starting in verse 8. And the first thing that we're going to see that Paul says, we saw it last week, is that love fulfills the law. Now, this is a pretty big statement, friends, that love fulfills the law. So why does Paul say this? And, and, and I think that he says this, which he says at the end of this passage, for one particular reason. He does not want... a those of us who know the love of God and are living as Christians in this world to separate love from our actions. So let's look at what he says here. Verse 8, let no debt remain outstanding except the continued debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, first question we should ask, well, we'll ask that first question in a second. How many of you have read through Leviticus and Numbers in Deuteronomy? Yeah? In one, in one sitting without blinking. How many of you have read through? Um, let's, it, it's a bit of a slog getting through some of that. Uh, the reason is, is because it is filled with what? Law and commands and what you should do and what you shouldn't do. And, and it's really pretty thorough. It covers a lot of strange things, uh, which we won't get into this morning. Um, so there is a lot there that is the law and all the things that we should do or shouldn't do or whatever. So when Paul says that love is the fulfillment of the law, he's saying that all of those things that you read through, that you worked to get through, all of that is summed up in one phrase, which is what? Love your neighbor. What does that mean? How? I mean, isn't following the law the fulfillment of the law? And hasn't he already said, like, we can't really follow the law, which is why we need Jesus? Wouldn't following those commands he listed, even just those few, mean you are following the law. So how is it that love is the fulfillment of the law? If it's all of these actions and all these things. Well, if you are thinking of the law as a list of actions and not as a change of heart, then you've misunderstood what the law actually is. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This is it right here. Now remember that a Pharisee was an expert in keeping the law, so he could tell you what you were supposed to do, what you were not supposed to do, how you should do what you're supposed to do, all that stuff. And the, the Pharisees believed when they came to Jesus, they knew the answer to this question. Now we actually don't see anything more about this interaction. That's where it ends. We don't know if they were impressed by his answer if they were not impressed by his answer, we don't know. All we have is this response of Jesus. And there's not anything to our eyes that is particularly shocking about what Jesus said, except perhaps verse 40. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. So get what he's saying, what Jesus is saying. We have all of this law, and then we have the whole history of the prophets and everything they said. And guess what? It all comes down to two things over hundreds of years and millions of words. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. 
You cannot, Jesus says, fulfill the law or do what the prophets said without loving God or loving your neighbor. And Paul says it is the fulfillment of the law. He doesn't even mention loving God. He just mentions loving your neighbor. Now, the Ten Commandments, you've heard of those, right? There's, there's ten of them. Um, they, they teach us that this is true. That if we can do these two things, love God and love our neighbors, then we'll be on the right track. While the Ten Commandments list specific actions, the heart of the Ten Commandments is love. Love of God and love of neighbor. So let's look at how love of God is reflected in the Ten Commandments. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn to Exodus 20. We're just going to list them here uh, on the screen. So what are the first four commandments? Number one, you will have no other gods. Number two, do not make idols. Number three, do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And number four, observe the Sabbath, which God has set aside for you to rest in him. So in order to carry out these four commandments, just to do these four things, what must you have? You must have love of God in order to do these four things. A deep love of God. Your love of God is the foundation that these four commands are built upon. That there will be no other gods, that you will worship nothing else, that you will not misuse the name of the Lord your God, and that you will observe the day that is set aside for you to rest in him. So each of these commandments are actually just ways for you to live out your love of God in relationship with him. They are ways that you show God you love him by doing these things. Now, the next command that sums up all of this is love your neighbor as yourself. So let's look at the next six commandments. All right. Number one, honor your father and mother. Number two, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. And you shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, these commands, as we see them, uh, they are not about God. They are about our relationship with our neighbors. And the core of these commands is, in fact, love. Loving your neighbor. If we do not love our neighbor at least equal to ourselves or more than ourselves, we will not be able to carry out these commands. You can't, you can't do it without that. Each of these commands is a manifestation of our love for other people. And if we do not love others effectively, we will not do these things because there will come a point where our love for ourselves is greater than our love for others, and we will justify doing one of these things and feel right in doing so. 
It is love of others that Paul is most concerned with in chapter 13. So, what is the difference that love makes, and how can it be the basis of all these things? Well, let's just put it simply. Would you be able to put God first in all things if you don't love him? And in particular, as I said, you have to love your neighbor beyond how you love yourself if you are not going to take what you want from them, which is really what those commandments are about. Besides the honor your father and mother part, all of them are about taking something for yourself that belongs to someone else. If you love yourself more, prioritizing your own needs over those of others, you will be more highly influenced to take what you want and to fill your own needs. Therefore, all of these commands, the rest of the law and the prophets, can only be carried out through your love of God and your love of others. God first, others first, you last. It's the only way. You could argue, in fact, that one of the biggest problems Jesus faced was the fact that people followed the law without love. That their love of God, and certainly their love of others, had gotten lost somewhere. To where you had a bunch of people who were doing all the right things, but it lost sight of who God was and is and were actively not loving other people and even withholding the love of God from others on his behalf. That's rough. And we haven't gotten so far away from that in some ways. So Paul says, leave no debt outstanding except for your debt to love others. Why is your debt to love others always outstanding? Why is it never settled? It's constant. It's always there. There will always be a need for you to love others. It is a debt you cannot pay off. And the moment you think you have paid it off, you will stop loving other people. So, this love, therefore, cannot be passive. Both Jesus and Paul expect that we will actively show our love to God and to others. We will do so by honoring God and not worshiping other gods. We will show him love and respect. We will not harm or take away from those we are called to love. But beyond that, we will feed our enemies, give them rest, make peace with them, and pray fervently that God would bless them. This love must be active because without the action to back it up, the kind of love that Jesus and Paul are talking about can't exist. It has to show itself in this way. Now, there's a reason why you need to work hard to make this happen. And, and the reason why we need to work hard to make this happen is not only because it's something we should do, and it's not only a representation of what God has done for us and how he's loved us. We are not living for this world. We are living for the world to come. And that world is coming soon. From Romans 13, again, verses 11 through 14. And do this, he said, all these things, understanding the present time. 
The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. And do not think about how to gratify the desires of your flesh. This is just another call out for us to not put ourselves first. And if loving others and, and, and loving God, if that's not enough motivation for you, guess what should be? Jesus is returning. So it's time for you to wake up. And, and to not act like he's not going to come back. Because he is. So live now for the world that is to come because Jesus will, will return and we, we believe he will return and we wait for that day. And, and the early church waited in a very real expectation that Jesus would return any time. And we are to live the same way. So how do we live that way? How do we live in expectation? We separate ourselves from the darkness and put on the armor of light, he says. Now, I want to make a special note about this. We cannot read this, giving all that Paul has said, as we are to disassociate ourselves with others who are in the darkness. That's, that's not what he's saying. Instead, we are to put darkness uh, aside, the deeds of darkness aside, in ourselves. And Paul gives us a list about what some of those things are. Avoid these things. But in no way is he giving us an excuse to not love those who are in the darkness. He has gone to painful lengths, in fact, to say you should really love those who are in the darkness. So we are to clothe ourselves with Jesus Christ and not think about how we can gratify our own desires. And if we clothe ourselves with Jesus Christ, so often we have focused on how we will do the good things. But you know what? If we clothe ourselves with Jesus Christ, we will do two things really well. We will love God, and we will love other people. Because that's what Jesus did. And all the things you see him say and do, all the actions that you see him perform, they are all done because he loves God and he loves other people. He loves other people so much, so much, that he allows them to kill him so that he might bring them life. That is an amazing and ridiculous love, church. That makes no sense, but it is what God offers to us. So conclusion, there's no way out of loving other people. I'm sorry. You just gots to do it. The message is relatively simple. Carrying out the message is hard. And the hardest thing about it is putting ourselves last. So as we close, I want you to consider the relationships in which you most easily put yourself last. 
I think about my kids. I think about my marriage. Maybe you have grandkids that, you can, that you're thinking about or maybe your parents or whatever it is. Why is it easier, easier to love those people? Or why is it easier in those relationships to put yourself last? Well, I already gave you the answer. It's because we love them. And in these relationships, we have touched on something deep inside of us that compels us to put ourselves behind them. The love is so deep and so strong that we want to, you see. We want to hold them up. We want them to succeed. We want to give of ourselves so that they might have a better life. It's a struggle still, but it is love that makes this happen. And that is what God calls us to with everyone. With everyone. With those you don't like. With those you disagree with. With those you're angry and hurt about things they've done or said with those who are being actively mean to you and their mom hasn't told them to stop. (laughs) With everyone. It doesn't matter who they are or where they came from. Because you know what the defining thing about these relationships is? It's where you come from. And you come as a representative of the God who loves the people in this world. And he loved you. Still does. Even though you were a mess then and you're a mess now. God still loves you. So for God's sake, go out and love others in the way that he loves you. Because that's what it means to live as one of his people on this earth. Amen?